Greetings listeners, this is Kim C and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that searches the vast expanse of his novels for all that beautiful writing. So welcome to today's first Bachman novel and this episode where, um, (laughs) if you could see me right now, uh, I have a feeling the majority of this episode my hand is going to be over my face in a kind of face palm action, mostly because, uh, well, let me start by uh, sort of announcing how humbled and present and connected to the sensation of sitting on the ground right now and not standing. My whole seat is on the floor. I I can wiggle my toes and stretch my back. It's heaven. And uh, those who haven't read this intense novel, in all caps, intense, probably uh, identify with what I'm saying right now. (laughs) I've never been more grateful or aware of sitting, the peace of it, the tranquility, than after reading this story. Oh my gosh, you guys. Okay, so The Long Walk by Richard Bachman, everyone. I think I'll start with this famous quote from The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which maybe you may have read in an English class, either maybe senior level or college. Uh, It's about a steamboat that goes into the jungles of Africa looking for this ivory trader named Kurtz. It's, I believe, the basis of Apocalypse Now, or something close to it. But anyway, uh, (laughs) there's a famous quote in this novel in which one of the characters, I think it's Kurtz, says, the horror, the horror. And I I bring that up today, folks, because, uh, my god, my friends, (laughs) this book, my god. Okay, where do I even begin? Um, so I've got, I, I wrote down some adjectives for you here. So this novel is unforgettable, pure and simple, unforgettable. I will never forget it for the rest of my life. It is devastating. It's a psychological minefield. There is this man versus nature dive into the abyss. It's dystopian, horrifying, fascinating, tragic, confusing, bleak. It's a story that made me physically experience phantom pain in my body. Truly serious. Mostly because I've had really intense back and foot pain from attending music festivals for so many years, but I digress. This novel takes you to the edge, guys. The edge! The edge of the physical, the edge of the mental. It's a sheer rock cliff face. And I swear, it's it's just incredible. And there are moments in the book where I really feel, you as the reader, feel those rocks shift beneath your feet. And you just you feel like you're gonna go right over the edge right over with it especially in the final moments so epic just wow so many things good and bad and insane and we have a lot to cover so i'm really excited to dive in with you guys when i was researching this book i read an article from i think it was either may or march of 2019 so relatively recent that said new line cinema was developing it for a feature film I was surprised to hear this as I think 
adapting it could be cool, but if they kept the tone of the story, um, everyone who sees that movie is gonna need like 10 cocktails after and a zillion Disney movies to help them recover after they watch it because you guys, this story is an emotional hell pit. <laughs> it's so sad. It's so choked with despair. But I was also thinking, uh, as I was reading it, I I think it could actually be a play. I think it could be on Broadway. Um, I really believe that the simplicity of it could be developed for the stage in a cool way where you have a background screen for the changing scenery, you have the progression of the day and the weather, and then all of the characters are walking on a kind of treadmill track. It might be genius, so any of my playwriters out there, I recommend reading this to see if it maybe sparks some creativity for the stage. Also in that same article, I read Salem's Lot was in development too, so fingers crossed we get some vampires, yay, because I think we, there have been some Salem's, Salem's Lot adaptations, they've been fun, but Vampires are always fun. I think in one of my catharsis corners, or I think maybe a Castle Rock episode, yeah, I talk about my love of vampires. So, uh, yay vampires. I hope that's true. I really do. So, <laughs> all of us on the planet have survived a rather... It's been a week, folks, and I just read this novel for the very first time this week. And in retrospect, I think I probably couldn't have picked a worse novel to read given the climate of the world and how uncomfortable <laughs> reality is. But um, as I was reading it and kind of sinking deeper into it, sort of being sucked into the quicksand of this book, I realized it actually might be digestible because everything is so awful around us and I may be so emotionally drained from life in general and stressed to the bone that a terrible story about constant death and despair is a little bit like hair of the dog. <laughs> like, hair of the dog is a lovely phrase and sentiment coming from hair of the dog that bit you. I'm sure I need not explain to, uh, to all of you, but... Just in case uh, a younger listener may not be familiar, uh, it means nursing a hangover with the very substance that made you get there in the first place. It's usually 100% associated with alcohol. So uh, when you wake up from a fun night out, you feel like trash, the best thing for you is a few mimosas. Uh, this novel is like that in terms of I was already a wreck and then this novel was just a little bit more gasoline on a, a dumpster fire. <laughs> it was not, however, like a mimosa. Uh, mimosas are delicious and effervescent and nice. Um, this novel was moonshine, guys. <laughs> like, throat incinerating, rip your stomach up, jet fuel varnish moonshine. It did not go down smooth. So intense. Um, I was surprised. I was glad I read it. Uh, I didn't think I would be able to, but given the fact that we're just in this, oh, wow, cataclysmic time <laughs> that we're that we're in called the year 2020 it actually wasn't that bad so 
moving on, uh, after I read the book, I took about 24 hours just to think about it, just to kind of let it sink and be and stew and seep in, let the emotions come down a little bit. And then I started to look at it academically and I was really salivating to get it into a classroom for discussion because there's so much here, guys, so much. Oh man, it's a feast. You could have discussion topics on this book for weeks, a good solid two weeks of daily exploring this book. And I was thinking definitely high school seniors, we could probably sneak in there. However, there's so much violence and there's quite a bit of x-rated stuff, not actual physical stuff, but the thoughts of a character. So if everyone in your senior class is not 18, which is typically the, ca the, the case, you might need permission slips. Um, but if you can't do seniors, definitely college freshmen. So if you're an educator and you want to take a crack at it, um, I recommend, I think you could discuss it for a, for a long time and get some really great participation and involvement. However, if you are planning on doing that, guys, please let them read. Please let your students read this at the beginning of the term, because if it's later in the spring when they're busy and there's finals, uh, that's disastrous because this novel, although truly compelling, is depressing and makes you want to pull the toaster in. Uh, seriously, 100%. And no one, especially precious dressed out students, need that. So um, be cautious in what time of year you assign it if you decide to, to uh, implement it as part of your curriculum. But I definitely think this is a very rich text that should be explored with young people for sure. So speaking of students, I'm astonished to even reveal this, but I found out Mr. King, who uh, I, I'm speechless with his greatness sometimes, guys. He was 18 years old when he wrote this. 18! I have my hands slapped to my cheeks right now. 18, you guys, I kid you not. When I was 18, I was reading Daniel Steele novels and Love and Life and writing in a journal with pink pens about all my unrequited crushes and I worked a terrible job in a department store. I was not composing insanely timeless classical dystopian stories that people will remember forever. Which is why, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, he's the king. He's just the king. Like, I can't believe it. 18 years old. So the fun part of this novel was really discovering the Bachman timeline a little bit. So being my first Bachman novel, I really did a little bit of detective work to try and connect the dots of when Bachman kind of may have arrived on the scene and all of that good stuff. So. It was at this point I got to kind of grab my monocle a little bit and do a bit of nerding out and also a little bit of math to get my ducks in a row. So if you're not familiar with the Bachman timeline, um, this will hopefully will be interesting. If you are, please forgive me uh, for the redundancy, but um, in my research of kind of discovering Bachman for the first time, so King's very first published novel was Carrie in 1973 published novel is the key word here, but it was actually his fifth written novel because he'd been writing in the shadows for years because that's what greatness legends do. Um, 
But according to my 1985 collection of the Bachman novels, which is what I read for The Long Walk, um, The Long Walk itself was written in the fall of 1966 and 1967 when he was a college freshman. Also, that is right around the time Vietnam started to heat up a little bit. 1968 was when all hell broke loose in Vietnam and America in general, but 66, 67 is when it started to become real for America and their involvement in Vietnam. Side note, but how he how he could be a college freshman and work on this and I, I have no idea how he did this, but when he finished it, he submitted it to a Random House first novel competition, and it was super rejected, bless him. Uh, my guess is that the staff or the judges might have been a bit too prude for the gore, and there's a couple like porno-esque thoughts in, from one of the characters, and they just might not have been ready for that. Uh, but after that rejection, he kind of just put it in a box and shelved it, and... Uh, but in the the compilation of Bachman books, he said it really never left his mind. It was kind of always in the back there. So what I was working out is that Steve publishes Carrie. It's widely successful in 73, then Salem's Lot in 75, then The Shining in 77, and then right in between sort of Night Shift and The Stand in 78, we get the first Bachman novel, Rage, in 1977, which is a little hard to find in print these days, um, which stinks, uh, Stephen King is totally okay with. It's, it's about a school shooting. And then in 1979, we get The Long Walk. 1979 also gives us the dead zone from King and then the rest of the early 80s is like this sort of domino King novel, Bachman novel, King novel, Bachman novel, um, releasing two more, The Running Man and Roadwork, all under Bachman. So I was really nerding out, I was really enjoying uh, sort of discovering the Bachman content, but I'm not going to go too much into it on this individual story, even though I'm super smitten by the whole thing. After this novel, I really want to read more Bachman books and discover more, and so this one's going to be a little general, um, but I'm just, I love the entire idea of Bachman and this sort of alternate writing personality, and I'm so interested in reading the novel. Novel, the Dark Half now, as I feel that one is really encompassing that Jekyll Hyde, Bachman King thing going on. Um, but I guess my, my main question that maybe we might answer a bit later in the episode is when he invented Bachman, like where in the timeline of his early writing did Bachman sort of take shape? So, I found a quote I liked from The Importance of Being Bachman, written in 1996, which was also the year Desperation and the Regulators was published, which was a Bachman-King uh, sort of dual novel, I believe, where he uses the same characters, although in different premises. So technically he killed off Bachman, but then brought Bachman back, but we'll get more into that in a later time. But in 1986, King is nearly 50 years old, and he says that although the early novels weren't written by, quote, Bachman per se, they were written in, quote, a 
Bachman state of mind, which was low rage, sexual frustration, crazy good humor, and simmering despair. So I like that. I like um, that a lot. So my hypothesis about maybe when Bachman was born, just a personal brainstorming. So Carrie and Salem's Lot and the stand Stephen King became Stephen King. And once established and recognizable, then there's movies and adaptations. And I think that maybe is when this literary voice wanted a little bit of spotlight, perhaps a more private voice. Um, maybe the younger version of King, like that true sort of young writer that was cranky and impulsive and selfish. It's just like wearing a darker mask, I think, where you're not afraid to say the things that maybe in your real life you are. It's more sinister. And for those of us who have read a lot of Stephen King over the years, I think he's an author that most of the time lets the good guys win. Um, I, I think so, even though his endings do get a lot of flack over the years, but several years ago I went to a book signing for uh, one of my other favorite fiction authors, Amy Tan, who is great if you're familiar with her, and she said something so cool and said, an author is public, but a writer is private. And I think that's what I'm seeing here or discovering here with the Bachman King thing to a small degree. Uh, I think although Steve is one of those legends who I think does both beautifully. I think he can be both a public persona and a private writer. But in these early days, the other king and the beginnings of Bachman, it just seems like this mask Steve could wear when he was still developing his voice but wanted to hide and be a little cynical, a bit of a hard ass, a bit of a sex fiend, and that Jekyll-esque kind of feisty jerk on the page. And uh, this guy, the Bachman guy, um, he's the one who doesn't get offended or pissed off or, or if anybody shuts the book. He, he just does his thing and it's a brilliant way of hiding and still creating. And so Steve says, Bachman says the things I couldn't. So I really enjoyed diving into to that. Um, and then what I also love is discovering that Bachman has a whole identity behind him. If you guys aren't familiar, Steve invented this whole life for him. He has a military past, he's a dairy farmer, he has a beautiful wife named Claudia, he had a tragic death of a child, and after he milks cows, he writes in the evening with a glass of whiskey next to his typewriter like he did a full fictional life for this guy. So. I love it, and we are definitely going to dive more into Bachman in future novels, but what we're going to talk about for this episode, guys, whew, let's take a breath. Oh man, buckle up, kiddos. We've got some real stuff about to go down in this episode, and I'm already slightly exhausted because, my friends, this one was no picnic. This one was rough rapids, but... We're going to start with our what's unique portion because I have a lot of topics I want to explore with you. And then after that, we're going to look at some characters. They are, I believe, all going to be honorable mentions because there's quite a few characters. There's there's a, there's a lot. There's a hundred, actually, and maybe about a dozen that we get in the spotlight. Um, and about 
half dozen who are prominently featured. So I don't really have any heroes and villains, so we'll talk about those a little bit. And then my last section is going to be what's working well, what I like, maybe a few things that fell flat, and questions. Oh my goodness, guys. I have a lot of questions. Um, which is kind of a good thing and kind of a bad thing. So we'll, we'll maybe let you see how you feel about that. Uh, I typically don't have a lot of questions with other novels, but this one is such a mystery mobile that there are things, there are things I need to know more about. So uh, that'll be in our third section. So before we go further, let me hit you with a brief summary. This novel, the, the one I read, was in the 1985 compilation of Bachman novels, and my version was 181 pages. It was kind of tiny print. Uh, I've also seen in the standalone copies uh, about 320 pages all the way up to 400 pages. So, in an unknown dystopian future, every May 1st, a hundred teenage boys from across America assemble at the Canada-Maine border to begin the Long Walk competition, a seemingly beloved and celebrated national pastime where they must walk south at a minimum speed of four miles per hour without stopping. The goal is to be the last man standing. They must walk and endure and wait on the demise of one another, for the sole winner, the last man standing of the long walk, will receive the prize, which is, quote, anything he wants for the rest of his life, including a very large undisclosed sum of money. The walkers can't stop. They can't sleep. Food and water are provided, but they can't stop. If any boy in the long walk tries to stop, escape, turn back, or slow down, they're shot on sight which is what the competition calls buying a ticket. So uh, <laughs> that's our synopsis. It's grim, folks. It is grim and dark and reads with the same kind of tone as a Holocaust story. So if anyone is a little sensitive right now or doesn't really want to dive into this book yet or know anything about the story, hang on to this one for a little while. But if you're like me and uh, didn't mind an extra dollop of literary misery to join your already clogged reality, <laughs> um, let's go ahead and lace up your comfiest pair of shoes and let's put one foot in front of the other and step into our next section. Okay guys, let's go ahead and investigate some of the unique components of this book. As I mentioned in the introduction, it was written by an 18-year-old Stephen King in the fall of 1966 and the spring of 67, which blows my mind. So as I was reading it, I narrowed it down to about four little categories I want to bring up uh, in terms of what's unique about the story. One of them has some subcategories about themes but the first one that's just so interesting and compelling, my first category, is the premise and the sort of science fiction mysterious backdrop. So premise and sci-fi backdrop. So the fact that this story is over 50 years old and it 
reads very fresh. It does not read like an outdated sort of old school fictionalization of the future, which I think a lot of sci-fi novels haven't really aged as well. Um, I've heard some of the classic ones like Stranger in a Strange Land and some of these sci-fi novels or um, futurist uh, brainstorm novels, you know, as we go into the future, obviously the tech is not going to age well, but King is, I don't know how he did it, because at 18, usually, especially what I see in a lot of my uh, fiction classes with young writers, is they're so excited to world build. They're so excited to just absolutely just in a deluge give you all the details of the world they've been creating all of the systems of government and the how long the city has existed and just details 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 and just create this world for you and I have to do a lot of mini lessons on showing versus telling because they just tell 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 they just want to explode with details on this world they've been creating and we do not see that here and it's so masterful and puzzling and also exhilarating because this story reads like such a mystery and I, I mean we are 20 years into the new millennium and this reads fresh like it really could still happen um it's 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 compelling it's so interesting we don't know what year it is we know that it's still in america that it sounds like, for the most part, things are in the overall American society are not that great, but we have very little info. It really tunnel visions the reader into these boys and the walk. And then as they travel from little town to little town in Maine on their way through New Hampshire and then Massachusetts, they are celebrated and greeted by crazy crowds and passionate fans when in reality these young boys are dying. They are dying on uh, their walk. They're walking until they die and yet people are cheering for them and clapping and making signs and it's it's bizarre it's really bizarre and I think that's why I have so many questions about this novel is either King was just really focused on the walk and the walkers and character building that he didn't really care about the external world as much um, so in the question section, we'll kind of talk about whether or not the mystery of the premise needed more or whether it really can be um, left as is. I think many readers were always anxious to and eager to uh, suspend our disbelief. We can really get by on very little, but I think with this story, we might have more questions than answers. And when I think the on a balance beam, when this the questions outweigh the actual answers i think that's when we might have a few hiccups but the fact that this story is as old as it is and it reads so fresh is is astonishing to me and i love the subtle sci-fi what we have with the long walk is very subtle sci-fi which is great um one of my favorite lines i don't remember what page it's on forgive me but he mentioned a young walker who has intense blisters to the point where his 
poor shoes are like filling up with fluid and pus and it's really grotesque description but our main character ray garrity says and he wore sneakers you never wear sneakers sneakers are the quickest way to blisters and so in my mind i'm like well what the heck do you wear then like what are you wearing what's on your feet you know like what is going on like what what are your shoes if nobody's wearing sneakers or tennis shoes or or athletic shoe like what what are you wearing what's going on so the sci-fi mysterious backdrop is absolutely unique for me so my second category and one that i feel is the most jam-packed meaty is the themes we have so many strong themes in this story guys oh my goodness this is why i believe it absolutely needs to be a classroom book if you're able to uh, get it approved by by your school board but it there's so much richness so some of my favorite things and i think one of the largest ones we see here is my, from my perspective, I believe this story is an allegory for war. I think that Vietnam, of course, is occurring at this time, but just wars in general and innocence lost and the disillusion of those who sign up. Um, you know, I think World War II, there was actual, you know, everyone, I think, mostly agrees that World War II was the last good war because we truly were fighting against evil. But Vietnam is when things get a little fudgy and the motivations for such are unclear. And so, um, yet, what's very interesting without revealing too much about the, the story is these boys sign up for the walk. It's not like uh, other YA successes like The Hunger Games, which is very successful um, and such a great YA dystopian novel. But um, if you guys remember from Su Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games, they are you basically chosen and forced to participate in the games um and if they you know resist they die their family dies of just dire consequences but these walkers these young teenage boys which it seems to be teenage boys only sign up and they actually write an essay and go through a selection process to be a walker there's even a um uh, an understudy there's a second sort of understudy list they get put on to to be a walker so it's fascinating but i believe it is an allegory for war and concerning vietnam if you guys haven't read the author tim o'brien i think one of his most successful fiction novels is um it actually might be slightly non-fiction but the things they carried tim o'brien is a wonderful author voice on the subject of vietnam and camaraderie and loss and just the horrors of that time and the the beautiful brotherhood that's created in in uh, soldier units as well as just the unfathomable loss of human life and these lovely young men um who had dreams and ambitions and and they leave home and they go to a faraway place and they're killed and they're lost forever and i think this this story really makes you look at war and makes you look at things where you think you're signing up for something noble or something that gives you intense purpose and will bring glory and honor to your loved ones and your city and your communities but sometimes that's not always the case and sometimes in actuality 
you're a disposable gladiator um, and uh, it's not worth your life. So I really think that we could talk so much about this story being an allegory for war, especially those who elect and sign up for it, who willingly sign up to be a soldier in a conflict that maybe there's not a lot of nobility or pride or, you know, purpose behind it. Um, you know, there's you're not fighting for good, you're fighting for somebody else's political gain or somebody else's sadistic motivations, I don't know, but allegory for war was huge for me in this story. Um, the second theme I have, of course, is camaraderie and crisis. We don't have too much uh, of that until the latter half, but it's amazing what happens to these boys because technically speaking, they it's not a team thing. It's very individual and you're really counting on the guy next to you to be killed first. This is a last man standing. You have to endure and survive more than the guy next to you. But yet there's these subtle moments as it's really getting difficult as the miles are trekking on and they haven't slept and they're getting rained on. And I believe our main character, Ray Garrity, says a line about it felt good just knowing he was a few feet away or I turned the corner and saw five of them in front of me and felt comfort. Just this amazing uh, human sentiment of being scared and alone and your body is going through a huge toll and you're not alone and there are people sort of in the trenches with you and walking with you and so I, I enjoyed that even though for the most part this book has a lot of young men who fight with each other and don't have nice things to say and it's ter it's really a huge competition and a mind game and they are not kind to each other for the most part. There are friendships that form and there are rescues that happen that maybe shouldn't have happened and yet they do because there's just that brotherhood amongst humans I think especially in difficult situations where we want to help and we want to take care of each other and um, I think it was Sebastian Younger had a terrific little book um, written within the last five years I think it's relatively new and it's called Tribe and he talks about um, community and a sense of looking out for one another and how that's how civilizations have thrived for thousands of years but tiny tangent but if you're interested in sort of the sociological um, communal taking care of one another I recommend his little book Tribe but it reminded me of that is where we see these little moments where even though these guys are on paper supposed to wait for each other to die the human spirit and the kind of the human soul and its kindness we see it come forth a little bit which is amazing so the other one I have we kind of already talked about the value of human life of just really looking at it because oh my goodness you guys like um these young boys are shot relentlessly and uh they're shot as they're dying and in pain and crying for their loved ones and they are trying so hard to keep moving, keep walking, keep going, one more step, one more step, and then they're shot and it's just relentless and after a while, like I think in most sort of 
horrific situations. I think the midbrain sort of filters out, (laughs) you know, like if you walk into a room and it smells disgusting and you're almost going to throw up, if you're able to hang on for a few minutes, your midbrain will filter out the scent a little bit and you'll get used to it. You'll acclimate a little bit to where you, you can hang on for the most part. Uh, I think that's what happens in this novel. There's so much death, relentless death and pain and suffering. And you're, you're just, after a while, I, I thought I would just be just a sobbing mess. And I actually wasn't. I actually wasn't because you really numb out a little bit, which I don't know if it's a good thing, but you, you are able to numb and filter out the horror to keep abreast of the story a little bit and just to stay with those who have survived but you really start to look at death in this very like almost nonchalant way where you're like well yep and it that's psychologically fascinating in itself of just kind of what happens but looking at the value of human life um in this race especially the other one one of my favorite sort of themes that i saw here was the fragility of the body and the mind. Oh my goodness, guys. It's just incredible as you have these young boys starting on this walk and as the hours tick by and when we get to that first night when the temperature drops and the sun goes away and then there's a little bit of rain that gets them, there's no shelter, there's no stopping, um, just what starts to happen. Um, when fatigue sets in, when exhaustion sets in, when the exposure to the elements starts to become relentless, we are such fragile little creatures. When, when we don't have shelter and food and sleep, like we just start to unravel. And that was fascinating to see in this book because these young boys are fit and strong and yet, you know, without sleep without um it's it's so in your face and visceral with the details guys like they cannot stop to even defecate they just gotta keep going and so it's a real challenge a lot of them are just stinking piles of their own filth because they can't stop they uh i think regularity sometimes will turn around and walk backwards to pee walking um they kind of sort of sleep Um, by maintaining their pace and just letting their head dip and their chin rest on their chest. So the, the deprivation of human needs and then pretty soon the mind. Uh, what was really fascinating about this book is just noticing how quickly these poor young boys started what they think about at first and then just the thoughts that sort of start to unravel them um, in terms of hallucination and memory becoming very, very strong and emotions going all over the place. For example, um, our main character, Ray Garrity, has a girlfriend named Jan and he thinks about her a lot, mostly in a sexual way, um, just because he's a teenage boy and really wanting that at this time of his life. But he, in the beginning of the story, he's like, oh yeah, Jan's my girlfriend, very, very nonchalant, very nonchalant. But the more he starts to suffer, the character and idea and presence of Jan becomes this like heavenly totem for him where he she just becomes holy to him he wants to marry her he wants to be with her forever he loves her so much he's never loved anyone more in his entire life and it was fascinating just to see how 
um, that fragility and what starts to happen to the mind. And then we, oh my God, we really see it. It's the image I had when I was thinking about our precious little brains and how quickly they are lost to us with extreme physicality, of course, is uh, like a yo-yo. Um, just thinking about the yo-yo going up and down, up and down on its thing, and then when it can't go up anymore and just having that poor little yo-yo get the string cut and it just rolls away. That is the brain, I think, on this story, guys. Like, you just... It can only take so much. It can only take so much and then it just is lost to you. And in the last sort of hundred pages of this book, it's like these poor men are at the mouth of madness. So uh, that is uh, one of my favorite sort of themes I see here. And then the last one I think is really applicable and really good for discussion. And that's the folly of youth. And I think that this one is really good to maybe discuss with young people because all of these young men in this book, I believe they are of the ages of 16 to 18, they don't think they're gonna die. Even though they know this competition is about death, all of them have this very ridiculously optimistic, it's not gonna be me, I'm gonna be the one who outlasts 100 guys, I'm going to win, I'll be fine, I can do it, I'll survive, like this just relentless, fearless, which was what youth has. I mean, we have these little, little, little people in our lives, adolescents and toddlers, they just run as fast as they can and they get slammed into by the world around them and they, they're freaked out a little bit, they get the wind knocked out of them, but they just keep on going and their, their little bones are made of rubber according to them and we see that here with these young men. All of them are so confident and so relentlessly just thinking that they won't die. That invincibility, they've got this really false sense of inv invincibility that they're not fragile, they can take on anything, they're gonna be just fine. And that is something that I think can really be talked about with youth because that's why everyone experiments with drugs and goes too far all the time is we just think we're not gonna die all the time. And so um, that is something I, I really saw in this novel is all of these poor boys just had it so wrong. Nobody was thinking logically or realistically. Everyone was just foolishly optimistic and uh, thinking it wouldn't be them. So my third category here is tone, guys. And I think tone is unique and I'm, I'm really isolating that in this section mostly because you guys, <laughs> it is, there is not one happy thing that happens in this book. I don't mean to spoil that for you, but there's nothing, there is not one moment of brevity or relief at all. And it's been a really long time since I've read something so bleak where there's not even a tiny glimpse. I guess you could argue that there's one little glimpse. Um, there's a section in the middle of the story where there's a, a bystander, a citizen, who wants to give the walkers some watermelon from his fruit stand. But of course, the soldiers are like, we're going to shoot you. You can't interfere with the walk. And something happens to where one of the watermelons sort of it's already cut and sliced and it rolls, they knock over his table and it kind of rolls into the road a little bit 
and the walkers grab it and they kind of take a few bites of this watermelon and pass it to the others and the sweet relief that they feel but even then it's like that's the only thing and it's that's it and uh they're they're just consistently suffering and dying and uh arguing with each other and there's just a few maybe moments of sweet like camaraderie there but I've just wow I've never read something a, a king novel where he he usually has such funny dialogue and there are some funny dialogue moments but just the tone of it all you know he'll have a moment where they're all talking and having fun and maybe laughing at a joke and then another person gets shot or you'll hear a gunshot in the background and then they stop talking and keep walking and it's just like oh my god <laughs> this is horrifying this is just so nuts um i would just no light guys like you are in the depths of you're in dante's inferno is what it is like you're just going down the levels of hell and there's no light there's no getting out so tone was so unique for me i was astonished that at the end i sort of closed the book and i was like holy crap like the whole time not one moment of light or brevity if you find some that i missed please let me know because in in my perspective there was nothing and then uh, this is kind of tying in uh, my last point uh, just a little bit more on this one mostly because I thought it was so unique um, and that is the topic of bodily extremity so I know I, I kind of mentioned that already with the fragility of the body and mind but oh my goodness you guys like this is an absolute slow uh, watch of a body a perfectly healthy young person dying like you're watching a a person crumble right in front of you in these pages and it just sort of hammers home our vulnerability on the earth and on the planet and how we're so so fragile um the elements absolutely destroy these guys. The not sleeping, the wet, cold, damp nights and mornings, the heat of the day. And though they do have food and water, it's more concentrated gel pack food. Um, they don't have... I this will be kind of addressed in some of our question sections but they do have a backpack and they are allowed to carry a couple things with them um some guy had like a jar of olives and a, some guy had some some other sort of food item so i think you're allowed to bring maybe one backpack full of things but again so mysterious we're not really sure they get every morning once a day about 9 a.m i believe a little belt full of little energy pack gels and uh it's just concentrated food almost like food paste or astronaut food um although i think astronaut food slightly more uh, solid this is just like liquefied energy and it kind of tastes like real food but um that's all they get and they, they have water but it's something there's something about like the non-shelter and the no sleeping um the extremity of and how quickly a human is reduced to just stewing in their own mess and madness and it's horrifying and you're really in this novel able to see a healthy body get destroyed right before your eyes like what happens to their 
feet and their legs and their backs and their kidneys it's just incredible you guys so that was so unique for me is just the bodily extremity here and this is where I believe we really see the horror of this novel the horror of the body being destroyed by this walk which is so subtle it's slow it's a slow horror that's just consistently like a shadow over every single character in this book which was fascinating um i think many would also agree you know the horror is like the death around them just like all this constant death but for me the horror is the actual walk the actual walk and it's subtle slow destruction that crept up on every single young boy so I have two little chunks of the text I wanted to share with you today. I have the 1985 compilation and this one is from, this one is a scene where they're really hungry and they see some bystanders along the road wanting uh, some of their food. And so in fiction class, they always told us to describe food. Food, if you are a writer and you're practicing your fiction, always 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 describe food because it always is a um wonderful descriptive uh connective way to your reader it's just because you know we all gotta eat and so uh i enjoyed this passage because at this point i think we're about 24 hours into the walk and the boys have gone about a hundred miles and many i believe at least 20 Five to 30 young men have died. This is on page 221 in the uh, Bachman Books hardcover version. Garrity looked at his watch. It was 20 past 8, 40 minutes to food. He thought how nice it would be to go into one of those little roadside diners that dotted the road, snuggle his fanny against one of the padded counter stools, put his feet up on the rail, oh god, the relief of just that, and order steak and fried onions with a side of french fries and a big dish of vanilla ice cream with strawberry sauce for dessert. Or maybe a big plate of spaghetti and meatballs with Italian bread and peas swimming in butter on the side and milk, a whole pitcher of milk. To hell with the tubes and the canteens of distilled water, milk and solid food and a place to sit and eat in. Would that be fine? Just ahead, a family of five, mother, father, boy, girl, and a white-haired grandmother were spread beneath a large elm, eating a picnic of sandwiches and what looked like hot cocoa. They waved cheerily at the walkers. Freaks, Garrity muttered. What was that? McFreeze asked. I said I don't want to sit down and have something to eat. Look at those people, fucking bunch of pigs. You'd be doing the same thing, McFreeze said. He waved and smiled, saving the biggest, flashiest part of the smile for the grandmother, who was waving back and chewing, while gumming was closer to the truth, what looked like an egg salad sandwich. The hell I would sit there and eat while a bunch of starving, hardly starving, right? It just feels that way. Hungry, then. Mind over matter, McVreeze incanted. Mind over matter, my young friend. The incantation had become a seamy imitation of W.C. Fields. To hell with you. You just don't want to admit it. Those people, they're animals. They just want to see someone, someone's brains on the road. That's why they turn out. They'd just as soon as see yours. 
So I like that scene. Uh, everybody's hungry and you're seeing people watching along this walk, hoping to maybe see you die eating a delicious picnic lunch. So I enjoyed, I enjoyed that section. And then my next example is from one of my favorite characters, which I'm going to be talking about in next sections, um, in the next sections character analysis. But Hank Olsen is so awesome. And so his little scene that I loved that we're going to be talking about in greater depth next, starting at the bottom of page 238 and on 239. Olsen had not spoken for two hours. He had not touched, touched his newest canteen. Greedy glances were shot at his food belt, which was almost untouched. His eyes, darkly obsidian, were fixed straight ahead. His face was speckled by two days of beard, and it looked sickly vulpine. Even his hair, frizzed up in the back and hanging across his forehead in front, added to the overall impression of ghoulishness. His lips were parched dry and blistering. His tongue hung over his bottom lip like a dead serpent on the lip of a cave. Its healthy pinkness had disappeared. It was a dirty gray now. Road dust clung to it. He's there, Garrity thought. Sure he is. Where Stebbins said we'd all go if we stuck with it long enough. How deep inside himself is he? Fathoms? Miles? Light years? How deep and how dark? And the answer came to him. Too deep to see out. He's hiding down there in the darkness, and it's too deep to see out. Olsen, he said softly. Olsen? Olsen didn't answer. Nothing moved but his feet. I wish he'd put his tongue in at least, Pearson whispered nervously. The walk went on. So that one I love, my friends. I can't wait to talk to you about Olsen because he is one of my favorites. So that's all I have for the unique portion. So let's go ahead and keep walking. Let's keep walking for our character analysis section up next. Okay, walkers, no rest for the weary. Let us forge ahead into our character section. So in our last section on the unique portion of the book, I talked about four categories. The first one being the premise and the sci-fi mysterious element, the sci-fi mystery. And then the second one was strong themes in which we looked at an allegory for war, camaraderie and crisis, the value of human life, and fragility of the body and mind. And then we also had the folly of youth. Our third category was tone and our fourth was bodily extremity. So I do want to jump in now to our character analysis portion where unfortunately I don't feel we have any heroes or villains. We just have honorable mentions because we just don't have enough runway with these characters, um, to, nor do they have any chance to be heroes. I mean, there are a couple things, but for me, these, this book was just about tragic characters all over the place. So, um, our usual, uh, menu is heroes, villains, honorable mentions, but these are all honorable mentions today. Our first one 
is a really interesting guy who I'm happy gets a little bit of character monologue, a little bit of for his backstory, and that's Peter McVries. And he is of tremendous assistance to our narrator Ray Garrity because I think there are minimum three, if not maybe four occasions where Peter saved Ray from dying. Ray was on death's door moments from being shot um, when Peter stepped in and helped him. And so I think Peter is really noble and even though he had nothing to gain by keeping Ray alive, he did it anyway. So very honorable character. He has a discernible scar on one of, I believe it's his left cheek. It's pretty big and so it definitely makes him stand apart. He's really feisty and he is not afraid of mouthing off and talking back to any guy who pisses him off and or just he's a ball buster um, or I think as some of the Brits and Aussies say taking the piss. I think he's a joker. <laughs> he uh, He's definitely sarcastic and forging on. Um, he does have a very tragic reason for coming to the walk. I think a lot of the other boys were motivated by the prize about um, this basically life of absolute luxury and monetary easy street, but Peter had his heart broken tremendously and his self-worth is in the toilet and he's just scraping along the bottom and so for him there was no other road so his uh character monologue i really appreciated and learning about his broken heart and he was with a girl who made a lot more money than he did and was so focused on money and he she i think she put a lot of pressure on him to make to be wealthy and to make more than her and he kind of crumbled under that and really really suffered from just being very hurt by another person and not encouraged and depleted and so he's a such a cool guy in terms of his sassy personality but he also helps uh, Ray a lot and he didn't really have to or should should have done that but he did so I really enjoyed Peter my second person uh, I want to talk about is Stebbins. I don't have a first name. I've looked and scoured the pages, but Stebbins is so peculiar and he will... I'll always remember him as being such a little weirdo in terms of calculatingly cryptic and uh, kind of that guy who's really obviously arrogant feels like he knows more than everybody and shows it and anytime you talk to him he's just being 100% condescending to you. That's Stebbins. He's slightly eccentric where I believe in the book he's wearing purple pants and so he's kind of recognized for purple pants but anytime anyone talks to him he kind of responds back with a question and I think Ray at uh, certain times of the novel says you're like the Cheshire cat Cheshire cat you're just constantly responding with another riddle or another question you never give anyone a straight answer he is really cryptic and he is constantly saying these little nuggets of like they you know they don't really know what it's about or they'll never know uh, they don't realize what's going to happen just like he he seems to have this insider info but he won't share it with anyone he also seems completely emotionless like 
almost, um, what do they call it when you're just, <laughs> other than a psychopath or a sociopath, just 100% emotionless. There's nothing there. Uh, he doesn't express remorse or fear, and he is at the lead of the walk for a long, long time. I don't know really how he does it. He is just at the head of the walk and you know I think as everyone starts getting weaker and weaker they're like Stebbins you know like what are how are you doing this and he's just such a jerk even in his most vulnerable bodily and psychologically he never really loses that jerk vibe of like I'm, I'm you're a lowly peasant I'm the winner here um, I won't reveal there's kind of a secret around Stebbins that we find out at the very end, which is kind of cool. Um, so I'm not going to reveal that, but I kind of understood a little bit why he was like that when we got to that secret. And you're like, oh, okay, got it. You're still a little punk, but I get it. So he was cool. He was, um, having said all that sort of negative jerk stuff about him, he's still cool. And I enjoyed any time someone would walk over to him. And Ray and he, he and Ray have a very, um, not love-hate, but more like peaceful hate relationship where sometimes they see eye to eye and then other times Ray's like, I'm gonna walk over your grave. Like, I'm going to walk on your dead body and I'm gonna outwalk you and you're, um, lower than dirt to me and I hate your guts. And so... Uh, and then he gives it right back, Stevens does. And so we'll have one moment where they're fighting and then another when they're kind of exchanging a little bit of wisdom or insight. Stebbins knows a lot about the walk, which is tied into his secret, but through him we learn that it's been going on for a really long time, maybe five decades plus. He knows the, about the winner of each walk, he knows uh, into the territories of each walk where they cross. He's just has a lot of knowledge and so he's using it to his advantage and not sharing it with anyone. He's just strategically in his own little playing field. So it's he's interesting. He's very interesting even though sometimes he just makes you mad. So my third person is of course Gray Garrity, our narrator, he is 16 and he is Maine's own, meaning he is the only boy, I believe, from Maine that is in the long walk competition. So as the walk is continuing through from small town to small town and city to city within Maine, he's really popular and there are tons of bystanders and citizens that make big signs for him and shout his name and so he's really celebrated and has a little bit of fame. And other boys really seek him out for knowledge about main weather and main roads and main towns and they're just like why is it so hot or I didn't know it rained this much and so he's a little bit of like their um their resource guide on the state of Maine and he's like how am I supposed to know I don't know I've never been to any city here but what's interesting about Ray he's got um he's 16 and so really kind of putting that mind frame with this character, he's, and this is, I'm going to talk about this more in my next section, he's a little, he's really horny. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. Um, yeah, uh, I want to say until the latter third of the novel, Ray is just obsessed with sex, man. He's just constantly thinking about it. His girlfriend, Jan, hasn't yet let him uh, have sex with her yet, so he's just can't stop thinking about it. And 
it's slightly obnoxious and it's slightly tiresome even though I'm not offended by it by any by all means I don't you know it's just the repetition of it it's slightly it's it's it gets tiring where you're like I get it we get it right you want to get laid we get it at the same time I don't complain about that so 50% of me is like okay this is stupid and then the other 50% of me is really fascinated where I'm like maybe this is what he's clinging to to stay alive like sex is a healthy bodily thing that is a sign of life and joy and so I wonder if maybe Ray is clinging to sex so much because his body's dying in a way, slowly dying, and he is trying to keep his mind from going completely into crazy town. So yeah, I guess I'm 50-50 on that. Maybe I'm not as negative about it as I thought, but I, I like Ray. Um, I, I think there's still not a lot of him we know. He's somebody that I think could have been developed a little bit more. We learn how, you know, he's pretty passionate of a person, but he talks about one of the big things within this book is that why did these boys sign up? And so guys like Peter, his heart was broken. And then guys like Stubbins, he just thinks he's God's gift and he thinks he can win. Truly, he thinks he's gonna win and he's gonna outsmart everybody. So the motivations are clear. But with Ray, they're not. And he mentions a time where he Jan was sobbing, begging him, please don't do this. She even, oh my god, like, uses her body. (laughs) She says, I'll have sex with you as many times as you want, wherever you want. If you won't do this, why do you want to do this? And it's one of those philosophical areas of the novel that I think go where it's, I guess, very much like a soldier signing up for war is they feel they're doing something noble or good or important. And I think that might have been what Ray was motivated by or thinking about because he just keeps telling her, I have to do this. I have to do this. And she's like, no, you freaking don't. Like the walk is murder. Everyone knows it's murder. What are you doing? So Ray's a puzzle for me. Uh, He really is despite being our main character. So I enjoyed him. I enjoyed sort of seeing all the moments where he was almost ready to just let death scoop him up. He was ready several times. And if it wasn't for Peter, it would have would have happened. And I think because Peter saved him multiple times, it really makes Ray feel indebted to Peter and he does repay those debts on a couple times when Peter loses it due to rage. He kind of has a little rage fit at the hundred mile mark where he's just yelling at the soldiers and freaking out, almost gets shot. And then uh, Ray sort of remembers, well, he helped me, I should help him. But Ray is a mystery. Uh, I enjoyed parts of his character for sure, but I definitely wish there was more. Um, The other thing that I also will mention here, and I just remembered it, I don't feel there was a healthy relationship with his father. I think that his father might have been someone who left or someone who was... There's a puzzling phrase they use in the novel called in the squads. I don't really know what it means other than a bad sort of lowly position. 
uh, maybe out of work or a job that's not very, you know, monetarily rewarding. And I think that it, it might be connected to the father, which if it is, that's a huge Stephen King fan. Um, if you get readers or people interested in Mr. King, uh, his own father left his family when he was very, very young. And he kind of forever chased after who his father was and is and um, we see that a lot. So I do think that also might be part of it, but it's so subtle. I wish there was a little bit more. And then my last honorable mention in this section is my fave character, my absolute favorite, and that is Hank Olsen. And Hank, I, I think I enjoy him so much because he's kind of subtle um, when he comes onto the scene. He's a little bit strategic and bold and a little brazen. Not very pleasant. When we meet Hank, he's um, kind of rough around the edges from what I remember. Uh, and uh, really looking at the walk as a game of strategy and but what ends up happening to Hank is he becomes a symbol for madness and the descent into madness he's also a symbol for what happens to the body when the mind just has to take over and propel it forward so the passage i read like there are several hank really starts to deteriorate quickly before any of the other guys he really really starts to um get sick his voice starts to get really creaky and dry he's weak he's despondent almost catatonic and yet he keeps going and the guys are making bets like i bet he's not gonna last the night and he does or they'll they'll say surely he can't last another hour and he keeps going and he starts to become a topic of discussion like how is he not dead yet because he's in such rough shape and what happens to Hank is he is a living example of The Walking Dead. Like, he is a zombie. But he goes into himself and he becomes this walking robot where there's his personality, the person that is Hank, is gone. And he's just this... His legs are moving, but he is not there. He's, and the mind is just propelling the body forward. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating, like, what the mind can do for the body, which I've read about this, and I think many of us have in these survival shows where you're exposed to the elements so long and your body is suffering so much no food, no water, sunburn, you know, dehydration, all of the things that are plaguing the body and yet the human will, the will to keep going, the will to survive is so strong that your legs keep moving and your heart keeps pumping and it's pretty miraculous. And that's what Hank is. Hank is a symbol of that human will that shocks everyone. Unfortunately, Hank doesn't, well, you guys know uh, it's a lat. It's only one man lives, and I'm not gonna reveal that. But Hank goes out in a blaze of glory, um, and I won't get too much into it. However, I kind of want to discuss it a little bit just because I found out from other readers that there's a trope that Stephen King uses in some of the gorier endings to his characters in which somebody's um, like eviscerated, like their entrails are hanging out and they're still able to stand up and walk. 
<laughs> and I guess that's a thing. I haven't, I don't recall seeing it in any other works I've read thus far. Probably because I just blocked it out out of the sheer terrifying nature of it, but um, we see that. We see that here with Hank. I apologize for spoiling that for you, but it's awesome. Uh, this, this guy just, uh, he, he goes for it. He embraces his death. He charges headlong toward it. He just, you know, he, he rages against the dying of the light as Dylan Thomas beautifully said, but he, when he decides to die, he goes for it and he decides he's going to take some people with him. Um, but there is, I, I wonder if this is the beginning of the trope where King will have somebody who's, their intestines are hanging out, but they get up and they're walking. <laughs> so it's horrifying, but I wasn't scared. I was like, oh, Hank, you badass, you, you go, you know, like, good luck, journey, journey forth. But he, he was impressive to me and he's somebody who I enjoyed as a very strong symbol for the horror and yet the human spirit at the same time. So those are my four. Uh, those are the ones that I really enjoyed the most. And now let's head in to our uh, last section of this analysis, which we're going to look at what's working well, what's falling a little flat, and my questions. So those are my honorable mentions, Peter McRees, Ray Garrity, Hank Olson, and Stebbins. So keep walking, keep walking, and uh, follow me into our last section. listeners, let's pull this tired train into the station on our last section where we'll be exploring what's working well, what's not working so well, as well as the numerous questions I had about this story. So to begin with the things I admired, I've kind of peppered them throughout this episode, but just to highlight uh, what I really enjoyed is reading the timeless nature of this book and the mystery of it. It's such a subtle science fiction hand. It's it's timeless and I really enjoyed that quality of realizing how old this story was, realizing the where the world was when it was written and not really getting a heavy-handed too much of that to where it's just this mysterious tale that's I, I was just so impressed of how easily readable it is right now today. Um, I also really enjoyed how it's reading very much like Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery, if you're familiar with that one, where basically these people have no idea what they're signing up for and they're just lambs to the slaughter. That's uh, about it. And I feel it's the same kind of theme as we have here in The Long Walk. The other thing I really, really enjoy, as I've mentioned in uh, sort of our introductory and uh, first section, the extreme physical. I am in a complete, um, wholehearted, collective um, accumulation that this is a horror novel, guys. It is a horror novel 
and the victim is all of these boys and their healthy bodies and it's just the horror of what can happen to the body when it's pushed to its limits and the horror elements are in full force of this slow ticking away of death and it just makes this novel an unforgettable sensory experience just totally and completely and it's so powerful i'm just i've never been so happy to sit on the ground right now guys i've never been so happy to to jog and, and or walk knowing that i could stop at any time like it just it messes with your mind in amazing ways much like if ever you have gone hungry or ran out of food and then when you finally do sit down to a hot meal that isn't a granola bar it's out of body it's almost emotional like you could take a bite of some mashed potatoes and nearly cry because your heart and your emotions are and even though yes the body is receiving sustenance it's just such an incredible look at the extreme physical mind and body so those are my favorites for what's working really well in the long walk so some of my negatives, I've got about three of them. My first one is the ages of the boys don't necessarily match up with the dialogue. So as far as I know, the mystery of this narrative, it sounds like the minimum age is 16, but I don't have that in black and white. But all of the young boys are young, they're teenagers. And so yet, however, I the dialogue is a little uh, adult for me. Um, in terms of just, however, maybe it could have just been that the the boys that King was writing about, I mean, life was harder. I mean, it, when we go back in time, life was less convenient and comfortable, and so people had experienced a lot by the time they hit their 20s. And a lot of these boys have as well. One character, I believe his name is Scram is his last name, he's already married and has, you know, a wife and a, pre a pregnant wife at that, and um, struggling to find work, and so they've really encountered a lot in their years. However, for being 16 through 18, especially Stebbins, who's just too cool for school and has this wisdom and this conniving, strategic um, way of speaking, I was just taken out of that a little bit where I'm like, these guys sound like they're 25. And I really thought that with the character of Peter McVries because his backstory, I, it just seemed like he had lived a lot of life by the time he had made it to the long walk. So early 20s at best, but teen boys, I, I was a little, mm, I don't know. Um, also toward the end as our poor victims of the long walk are starting to mentally unravel and just lose it. There's a lot of talk of, well, screams, I should say, of some stuff that I don't know if a teen boy would scream about, but then again, that's madness for you. So, for example, some of the young men, as they're dying and their mind is completely unhinged, they're screaming about the whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation. And uh, unless you went to seminary school, I mean, why would that come up? You know, I, I just kind of wonder, like, what? I don't know. I was thinking, then again, that's kind of a we might have to scratch that because madness is madness, so I don't know. I don't know why they would have focused on that, but I was hoping for maybe more relatable teen stuff. 
just a little bit but so I don't know insanity is insanity so we might have to scratch that last one but it did take me out of it a little bit the ages of the boys and the maturity level my second negative is the motivation to enlist so um, the winners are spoken about the winners of the long walk are uh, we don't really get a good idea of why this hellish experience is remotely worth it. The prize is just too mysterious. Um, I think it was Stebbins who mentioned one winner of the walk. He survived and, you know, he's quickly hospitalized and he died of a brain hemorrhage the next day. So I don't even think he was a winner for 12 hours. And so it's like, okay, well, um, well, so we don't have a good idea of the winners of why, you know, such an amazing prize would be sought after. And then we also don't have a good indication of the world being a horrible place where young men would feel compelled to sign up for this. For example, um, the bystanders who come out for this uh, to watch the walkers pass through their towns, everyone seems in, you know, not destitute. They're celebrating. They have the school band, everyone looks well-fed and well-dressed, so the dystopian nature of it, I'm not really, you know, I was expecting more of a Mad Max vibe, perhaps, or, you know, a subtle hand where the world or the America that he is writing in, this really grim competition is because, you know, the world is a very sinister place, and this new sinister and completely devoid of you know human decency is going on because we just don't get that and it's a little bit disjointed because if the world is not in ruin you know what are you know what's i i don't know so it just was disjointed for me why would these young men sign up um if the world wasn't in unless they were being forced or unless the winnings like getting whatever you want for the rest of your life is that like are we talking like a hundred million dollars are, are we talking you know what does that mean like you you live on your own private island i i just would have liked more details that could have highlighted that so um the motivations to enlist i think would have been an enjoyable part of the narrative. Either give me a little bit more on the world that you're writing in, not a lot, you can just give me a little bit more, um, or more on the motivation for winning the long walk. I would have enjoyed that a little more. Uh, so my third one, and this is, I kind of mentioned it already, there's just too much sexual preoccupation with Ray. I did give the 50-50 of why I'm slightly okay with it, but it, it's polarizing, that's for sure. Um, it's, you know, he's really aggressive with it at times where he's just really objectifying not only a fantasy version of Jan in his mind, but any female he sees along the road, which I get it, testosterone, I'm aware. Um, but I, after a while, it's like, uh, dial it down a bit. We get it, right? We get it. So, um, that would be something I would have liked a little bit more of a lighter touch with. I can understand being your body going through physical, a gauntlet of physicality and your mind, but 
it's consistently like there's even some parts where they walk kind of towards the crowd and girls in the crowd kind of try and hug them and he wants to I think he gropes one of them and it's like please stop let's not do this let's <laughs> let's um I don't know so that one was a little bit polarizing for me where I wish it was done a little bit different so those not too many in the negative however what might end up happening in this next section are the questions I think when you have a lot of questions like I do it kind of hints to not enough of narration or not enough description of plot and that I feel is a little bit negative so some of the questions I have is um, how does a a long walk competitor get rid of a warning and how many hours does it take so I didn't talk about this too much throughout the episode but basically what we read a lot about is that when a walker stops they can never stop so if they stop they get like a 30 second from what I kind of am imagining this is more this is my own deductions rather than what's black and white because there's not a lot to go on here but they'll get a warning announced to them by a soldier on the sidelines and it'll say warning warning number 47 which is they, they only have numbers not names and then I believe another few seconds maybe another 30 seconds goes on that's warning number two and then warning number three I believe so I think it's like 90 ish seconds maybe up to two minutes but after warning three you're shot however one part of the narrative as they keep going as they say I got rid of a warning so I guess if you did have a warning or two on you the longer you walk one of them drops off but how or how many hours does it take to do that that was very unclear to me so um, the other question I had is what is allowed inside their backpacks because each boy has one it seems and yet it's like well what are they allowed to bring because some people brought food uh some some person brought an extra pair of shoes which incredibly wise i didn't know why everybody didn't bring that um you know what is even allowed are you even supposed to have a backpack so that was very unclear um the other question is why is this so beloved like again this goes back to the world building but it's like this is death this is this is like over a period of a few days 100 young men will be killed in this competition you know where are the protests and riots for that um like why is this allowed why is this something that's wholeheartedly supported by communities I gotta know because you know there are times throughout the novel I wanted to give up reading because this tone was so bleak but I just you know wanted to know who won and that curiosity drove me on but what the heck man like this long walk competition is is true murder um yeah the the odds of survival slim to none and yet it's just celebrated and I, I need to know more about that. Um, and then my last question is, I we just really need to know what all they say the prize is, is anything you want for the rest of your life. Ah, we just need more guys. Like, what? Um, what, what do you mean? Uh, what if you, are we talking like monetary f creature comfort kind of stuff? Or 
what if you wanted to get away with murder or you know like if if I won I would say what I want for the rest of my life is to cancel the long walk competition so no one ever has to do this again like why didn't anybody do that um things like it's just too vague too too vague and it was like oh Steve you have to you're putting us through hell with this narrative and there has to be some little glittering carrot here like you know, how did other winners celebrate? You know, do they live in mansions in Hawaii? Do they, you know, uh, save an entire town and pay off the electricity bill for the whole state? I don't know. Like, what does that mean? Because the parameters, we need to talk about them. And I think so do the guys on the long walk as well. So those are only four questions that I wanted to list, but I had like eight to ten guys and so I feel when there's so many questions that just aren't listed in the text it does show a little bit of weakness in terms of the um just the totality of the plot and the the world building I'm all about mystery but too much mystery is also a bad thing and I think the long walk for me is an example of that um, however, it could just be that the tone is so bleak that I'm just dying for something as a reader. I'm just craving an answer or an absolution or something that makes freaking sense. Like, this is awful. Why? You know, we, we need to know why and there's just no why. And I, I know that I've mentioned this um, when I talked about the ending of Under the Dome because everyone's like, why, 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 why? And he gives us the answer why. However, um, I'm all about embracing the chaos and just having that acceptance. But this one was a little hard for me to do that because I just had too many questions to overwhelm the suspending my disbelief. So I would love to know your thoughts on that because... Um, this novel has really high reviews out of the early Bachmans. I think it is really beloved by readers, and I can see why, because it is unforgettable, guys. Just the, the horror of this experience and the extreme realness of it and the sadness and the, the way the novel's structured. It's just, we follow them every step of the way, which, um, not too much of a spoiler, but they do get pretty far. Um, they go over 300 miles and I think they get to day five. And so if you really think about that, I like imagine being outside, not sleeping, moving constantly. Like I, one of my favorite aspects of the narration is they mention how the boys have aged. Like they see physical gray hair on their heads and it looks like they've gone wrinkled and 10 years haggard. It's incredible. It's just incredible of what happens to the body in such extreme situations. So overall, I, I don't know if, if I can read this story again unless it was in an academic setting. If I was reading it with a classroom, I would definitely do it because then I'm looking at it academically rather than personally. Um, but if, if I were to, I could not do it by myself again, guys. Too much for my little heart. I got a marshmallow heart and it's already been charbroiled by, <laughs> by, uh, by this year thus far, but... 
it's too sad and it's too heartbreaking and the final note of the ending does not bring relief it just doesn't um and uh, you know the unforgettableness is i've just never been so aware of physical pain in in the body and the joy of resting my body and sitting and letting your shoulders droop down and um if you're a yoga practicer the the savasana pose or dead body pose like there's never been more relief or i've never appreciated just lying flat ever in my life so in that regard it's such a powerful novel but i i don't want to read it again <laughs> um i really really don't guys a little bit too much uh for my heart but i do appreciate that this is beloved of one of the early bachmans and i do think it needs to be read for sure um because it's there's a lot to talk about here and that's what i appreciated so much good and bad it's a great book for discussion i enjoy the timeless quality to it um and the overall pushing curiosity of who will win um which kind of alludes to the power of the mind um no matter how exhausted we are physically or maybe emotionally from reading something so sad so sad we keep going we keep walking we want to get to the end the fascinating curiosity it's incredible so there's a lot of really good stuff in this novel and i'm just so impressed i'm so impressed by young Steve King. It's incredible. And I plan to read more Bachman books as a whole. Um, this alternative writing personality has got me so excited and I feel like I've just opened up a whole new level to King's work for me of viewing this writing through the filter of Bachman and who Bachman is. I'm just so excited to get to know that a little bit more. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. So those are my final thoughts about Long Walk. It was a long journey, guys. It was um, tonally, it's just bleak. So as I mentioned previously, if your heart just needs to uh, feel happy right now, let's save this one for a little bit. But if you want some hair of the dog with your sadness, let's go for it. And I hope you enjoy the points we discussed here. So right now, I am working on my novella collection, um, not my personally, uh, the, the my meaning my favorite and the one that started it all for me, Full Dark No Stars. I just decided to go with it, so I'm currently reading the first novella in the collection 1922 and it's even better than I remember guys I'm so thrilled so I'm gonna have that episode for you hopefully next week so if you would like to join in on that journey with me please do but until then please reach out at underratedsk at gmail with any of your thoughts about the long walk about things I might have gotten wrong or if I missed something in some of the question area that you can shed some light on please do because because I hate feeling confused and I would like some, <laughs> I need some closure for this book and I don't think there's any closure, friends. So if you've got any closure on your end, I would appreciate that. So please reach out at underratedsk with any um, suggestions for show content, um, anything and anything, anything and everything I think is the phrase. Um, I would love to hear from you. So wherever you are in the world, uh, stay safe take care of each other, follow your heart, and stand for what you believe in, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye!